five years ago when I was showing charts of the size of these companies, the biggest was $500 billion. People would go, yeah, but it can't get much bigger than 500 billion. And they're all $2 trillion companies now, right? They've quadrupled in size. So why wouldn't they quadruple in size again in the next five years? And if they did, what would they actually be doing? And then I think we have to start asking these questions. Some of them are a bit philosophical because they're not hurting us today in the here and now necessarily. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media, the UK startup podcast hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. We talk to entrepreneurs at the top of their game to help you get ahead of the competition. Today, I'm speaking to Azim Azar. He's a founder, investor, speaker, journalist, and author who spent decades in and around tech since the dot-com era. Now, humans coming second best of technology isn't exactly a new subject, but Azim has an original take on it in his brand new book, Exponential, how accelerating technology is leaving us behind and what to do about it, which is being released right now. It's about the expanding gap between technology and society, not just computing power, but energy, market control, and even how our countries are run. He presents the immense problems and opportunities this creates for us as a species. But before we get into all of that, let's rewind and go back to the start. I've been starting things up since I was at school. It was nerdy stuff at school. It was like the debating society because I wasn't good enough to get into the debating team. So we we set up a debating society. And at university, I set up a student newspaper. And, you know, I put that newspaper on, not even, but the web wasn't around at the time, on something called Gopher back in, you know, 92, the web had just started. And so I was always trying to create things, but I didn't necessarily know how to. And I started to get involved in the tech scene as as an internet correspondent in the 90s. So I got to know all of the early internet service providers, which were some of the first tech startups in the UK in 94, 95. And by 99, I had invested in my first companies. I mean, not using other people, an investor's money, a, a hedge fund. And so we set up an incubator, which I founded with terrible timing, but we produced some interesting companies. I say terrible timing because we essentially closed our funding within a matter of weeks of the peak of the dot-com bubble. And thereafter, it was pretty downhill. And so after that time, I pretty much spent most of my time working with startups, either as like a marketing director or a product manager. And I founded a company in 2009 which was called at the time Viewsflow. And what was happening back in 2009 was that people were starting to go on social media. So Twitter had about a million users. And I found really, really smart people on Twitter. And I thought it'd be really interesting if we could get the best articles shared by the smartest people on Twitter and kind of automatically collate them and turn it into something that you could you could read. And that became Viewsflow. And Viewsflow pivoted because we couldn't find a business model back in the Twitter of 3 million users and Facebook of less than 50 million. And what we started to do instead was we took a piece of our technology and it was a piece that I, that worked out whether you had any expertise in a subject. So it might look at you and say, you're Dan, you know something about um, nutrition and cognitive health, and you know something about leadership, and you know something about podcasting, but you don't know anything about vertical farming, or you don't know anything about Chelsea Football Club. And we were able to figure that out algorithmically by looking at the flow of 
data across Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook. And it was quite a sophisticated piece of technology for the time. I don't think at the time Twitter had a data science team because we actually hired their first data scientist when he wasn't able to get a work permit to work in Twitter. And Peer Index, you know, went through the usual ups and downs of startup life. We raised some money, we served some customers. And in the end, after a number of pivots, we became a SaaS platform as a software as a service business that provided marketers an analysis of customer behavior on social networks. So we looked at the public messages and tweets and what have you that public profiles had made. And we were able to go off and talk about tell marketers what people were saying. And some big brands like um, Unilever, for example, was was one of our customers. But it was a very, very long journey. And we were, I was pretty tired by the end of that journey. We were acquired by Brandwatch, which is a Brighton-based company. And Brandwatch itself, we were acquired by Brandwatch in December 2014. And Brandwatch itself was acquired a couple of months ago by an American company. Uh, so it's a long journey building a startup, uh, but it's one which really helps you mature as a person, right? But you just learn about strengths that you didn't even know you needed to have. So what is the book about? Well, the thesis of, of the book is that technology is accelerating. And in that acceleration, it is creating a, a gap and leaving behind what we think of as society and the institutions of society. And in that gap sits a lot of room for tension and unhappiness and conflict. And I argue about how we need to adjust and deal with this accelerating technology and how we need to change our institutions and the way we design them so that we can close the gap between these technologies. Now, the thing is that there's nothing new about writers writing about accelerating technology. I mean, it's happened a lot in the past. But what I think is different about my book is, first of all, I try to explain why technologies are accelerating and evidence, give evidence that they are. But I also think there's an important moment in time right now where it's not just about computing that it's accelerating. It's also the technologies of of biology of you know including protein engineering and precision fermentation and genomics it's the technologies of energy from renewable power to storage and it's the technologies of manufacturing we think about 3d printing and these technologies are also combining in really novel ways and there are reasons and processes that i explain to justify why i think that acceleration is is happening but i think the thing that's particularly interesting about the book is that I just talk about the technologies in the first two or three chapters to set the scene and to argue that we're moving into what I call the exponential age. And the exponential age is a recognition that technologies impact societies in very, very wide ways. Now, the example that I use for that is you and I are both in between Golders Green and Cricklewood right now, but in different places. Yeah, it's funny. We, we found out that we're having this interview about 10 minutes walk from one another. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We could have been in person. I actually opened the book with a reflection on what the roads were like in where we are. And in fact, I have a map 
Dan, of the roads that I live in and that, that you are probably in at the moment from 1895 and from 1930. And in 1895, where my house is today, is a farm and I'm in a field. And my local co-op, which we talked about, is a blacksmith's. And by 1930, the roads have been laid out as they are now. And in that intervening 35-year period, three technologies came along, the car, the telephone and electricity. And they redefined London from a early Victorian London to a modern London with modern work habits and commuting habits and so on. So the technologies impacted society. And alongside that came changes to our political system and to our employment and our, the nature of our jobs. And I use that as a kind of analogy to explain this notion that technology does not appear from nowhere. It is closely allied to the shape of society. And that if you have exponentially changing uh, technologies, they will force changes on society or create this gap. And that the fact that they move so quickly and combine so rapidly means that the gap grows very, very rapidly. So that that's really the argument of the, the gap. And then what I do in the book is I look at the gap. I use that as an analyst, a, a sort of a lens to look at the economy, to look at the nature of work and these questions of, you know, roboticization and robots taking our jobs. I look at the question of global trade and the relative power of countries. I use it to look at what's happening in the domain of conflict and security and what we thought of as the military sphere. And finally, I look at what it means to be an, a citizen in the exponential age. And so, I, I, you know, roughly that's kind of what we might call the political economy, right? I take us through the political economy through this lens of the exponential gap. And of course, like, like any great thriller, I want to wrap it up with some, with a, you know, not quite in a neat bow. I'm, I'm, it's a bit more open-ended than that, but I do try to give some recommendations, both for what we, what design principles we need for our societies in the future, and also where we might expect things to go in the coming 10 to 20 years. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. 
It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I'd love to start unpacking some of this with you. Like, what do you think about that? What do you think about um, exploring growth in GDP as the ultimate measure? Is that ultimately the devil in the detail that causes this kind of exponential curve? Growth as a GDP growth as the sole measure is problematic, right? And we we largely, I think, people start to understand why. I mean, I think the disagreement that occurs is whether there's anything better for people to focus on. And I think that plays a really important part in the development of these exponential technologies. But I think it's in a sense, it's a secondary player, because the real thing that drives these technologies to improve rapidly is a process of learning. And essentially it is, that's why I say sort of technology is is a kind of a human artifact, because we all are familiar with Moore's law, the idea that silicon chips get twice as dense every every couple of years and therefore twice as fast for the same price, roughly speaking. And it's been true for 50 or 60 years. Uh, but there's a better relationship that describes how technologies get cheaper and better and therefore you know, faster. And that's something called Wright's Law. And it dates from 1936. And it's the idea that for every doubling of production of an engineered product, there will be some kind of learning rate that will reduce the cost to make each version of that product. And Theodore Wright looked at airplanes and he found that there was like a 15% reduction per unit cost for every doubling of, of, of production. In the case of silicon chips, it's much faster. In the case of other technologies like um, solar cells and wind turbines, it's in the double digits. And it's what gives rise to those technologies today being exponential technologies. Now, the thing about the learning in Wright's law is that we love to learn. And if any of us took up any new hobby during lockdown, whether it was, you know, running as I did or sourdough baking as other people did, we got better and better because we learned how to do it better with every single turn of the of, of the loop. And I think that the thing that really drives these sort of exponential technologies is not so much the profit motive, but it's the fact that as we produce them, we get better at doing it and therefore may use less materials or maybe we just miniaturize them or we make them more efficient. Now, there are some capitalist things that make it go faster. So, of course, the profit motive increases demand, which means that we learn quicker because we get that doubling that Wright's Law talks about. And global trade increases markets. So the doubling of demand can happen in many more countries, which increases it still further. And the internet means that we can learn from our competitors and customers from all over the world. So our learning rate can go up. So all of those things, I think, are connected. But at the heart of this is this learning. But there's something else I think is just really fascinating. And I, you know, I know the modern kind of conception about the purpose of a company being just to make profits comes from Milton Friedman, and one of his essays in 1971 in the New York Times, it happens to be the same year that Intel releases the 4004 chip, which is the first general purpose chip. So in a weird way, I date the start of the exponential age to 
I mean, the, the kind of initiation of it, the first whispers to 1971 for the technology reasons. But it happens to be the reason that the sort of neoliberal capitalist model that you sort of alluded to in your question gets its philosophical underpinning. So just at the moment that we get these crazy technologies that are just going to grow really fast and get really quick, we also changed the way in which we ran companies and our entire conception of what value was and said, we got to focus on this one one number. I don't know whether that's God laughing at us or just or something else, but it sort of feels to me like it's, um, it's a weird coincidence. And I do think that what that's done is that it's allowed the tech industry 40 years to not really ever have to look at itself and set, ask the question, why are we doing this or should we be doing this? And it feels a bit like a runaway train, right? As in like the genie's out the bottle, how the fuck do you put it back in? Do you literally need to escape and go to Mars? Is that like the last sick joke? You know, without being too on my high horse, I'm curious as to like what extrapolations you've made in your research from this. Well, you know, this is about power uh, more than anything else. And I think the issue that we contend with with technology is that it's not necessarily been created close to the people who it affects. And when we think about the technology industry, it's dominated by not a small number, but a kind of a large number of very big and powerful companies. We tend to focus on the biggest four or five. They have a, a power that is unlike any company ever before, right? The power that Ford or BP Shell or Esso had on us in the 80s and 90s was about choice of car colour or the price of petrol at the pump. But even then they were competing with each other. The power that the big technology companies have today is really remarkable. You know, there are attacks, cyber attacks that take place across the world that the nation's governments are not able to prevent or diagnose or stop. And they have to rely on these big technology companies. When we look at the public sphere where debate and discussion happens, it largely now happens in privatised domain of, of Facebook or, or WhatsApp or Twitter, where these companies make particular decisions about how they design their products and what gets seen and what doesn't get seen. And it's not to say that these are easy questions to answer, but it's to say, I think one of the things that's problematic is that sense of power and the concentration of that power in the sense that the technology perhaps doesn't necessarily work for us. And yet there are technologies out there that are amazing and a benefit from exponential underpinnings where we, we don't feel like that. I mean, I think about things like Wikipedia. I mean, people complain about bits of the Wikipedia, but Wikipedia or open source software, these are things that largely we think of as being being good for us and, and good for the world. Yeah, I completely agree. So what are some of the biggest threats then? What keeps you up at night? I think the main issue is about, I kind of call it pitchfork risk. Uh, it's this idea that people get really, really unhappy about the shape of power and therefore there are bad outcomes, right? There are bad outcomes in, in you know, and I metaphorically call it the, you know, the pitchfork. The issue is that we often don't see what the harm is that is being done because the technologies are getting better all the time. I mean, the Google search engine of 2021 is better and more usable than the Google search engine of the year 2000, even if it is sort of full of, full of ads, and it's still free. You know, Amazon and Amazon Prime 
deliver an amazing array of products to us at really, really good prices. And we, we care about, you know, we, we benefit from that. The trouble is that we don't necessarily see the, the external costs, the hidden costs of those things. I mean, in the case of Amazon, it may be in terms of how well other people are treated, how well their employees are treated, and the conditions under which they labour. Or it might be about the impact that Amazon has on other companies and other suppliers. Um, I mean, there's more and more written about Amazon being able, being able to use its market power to determine pricing and that the, those costs often being borne by the small businesses that sell products through Amazon. So that the things that, that worry me are that in the five years, six years that I've been researching this, the very biggest companies have got even bigger. I mean, they're four or five times larger than they, they were. They're highly, highly capable at being able to expand into new areas, whether it's you know, healthcare or commissioning original TV shows. I mean, I love this show, Ted Lasso, which I think is on Apple TV. I mean, so Apple makes a, a heart rate monitor and it makes great TV shows. And they don't seem to demonstrate that anything will hold back their scale. And I certainly make that argument in the book. And that's problematic. I mean, it may we may feel that we benefit from it today, but I think it's always a problem when any institution gets too powerful and there aren't checks on its power. Yeah, we're used to the system of pre-pandemic as well. Like identity is very much based on where are you from, what are your borders and how do you interact? And then pandemic comes along, everyone's locked up, the world goes remote and suddenly you could argue that Facebook is a country, TikTok is a country, Twitter is a country, like there's open borders everywhere, people identify well there. What does it even mean to be a citizen in a place? Those were some sort of interesting insights or snippets into insights of what the future could hold in, you know, an almost accidental setting. Is everything I just said complete bullshit or do you agree or what are your thoughts on that? And did the pandemic shape some of your thinking as well? I think your, your point about the pandemic changing a lot and making us question our identity is a really great one. I don't think we know the answer just yet. In the book, I talk about the growing importance of cities in the exponential age. And the reason they get more important is because in order to build these complicated technologies, you actually need to bring lots and lots of smart people together. And while we can increasingly work remotely in some domains, there are other domains where, where we can't. And you just need to be able to get people together in the same place. And that's certainly the case in a lot of these, you know, biology businesses or things that relate to, you know, renewables and, and, and so on. But there's another interesting thing that happens with, with cities, which is that, you know, cities are are wealth creators and their cities are going to be more important over the next 20 or 30 years. I mean, even if we feel that a handful of people have left London or left Paris or left Manchester, cities are going to continue to be more important and we're going to see the world's first cities or clusters of cities with more than 100 million people living in them over the next 30 years. But what will also happen is that some exponential technologies will give cities a sense of self-determination that they currently don't have because you can generate your power locally through solar and wind and having local battery storage and so you don't need a national grid. 
You can grow your food through vertical farms and high intensity farming. Uh, you can manufacture your finished products through 3D printing. So you can localize very, very heavily. And there is a trend of localization more widely because of security concerns and because of the widening back of globalization. So I think cities become more interesting. And you know, what we've seen is that cities are willing, their city leadership, where they're able to, are willing to stand up and lead the agenda. So in the in the US, there's a thing called Mayors for Guaranteed Income, which is about a half a dozen mayors who are trying to do experiments around universal basic income. And of course, there's a C40 city group, which is City Mayors Against Climate Change that's been running for a decade and taking advantage, making the point that cities are going to be at the bearing the brunt of climate change because cities are generally always by the coast uh, and always by rivers and have all the people and national governments were dragging their feet. And I think that that says a few things, right? It says there's a tension between cities and national governments, but it also says a lot about, you know, what do we do and where do we live? And pandemic or not, we're still an urbanizing species. You talked earlier about um, about Apple and I guess, you know, the idea that they can do anything. I think you referred to them as a unlimited company. So why do you think unlimited companies might be good or bad for people and also small businesses, emerging businesses? What does that sort of monopolistic unlimited company mean for people like myself? Are we fucked? Only when you get big enough to matter to them, which in your case, Dan, your business is doing so well that, uh, and just a shout out for Dan's business heights, you know, it's doing super well. You'll be in their crosshairs in no time. Thank you, mate. Let's think about this, right? So it's a, it's a mixed story. Apple provides this really secure platform where you can build an app and you can bill. And if you're a small business, you don't get charged the full 30%. Um, and they make it really easy and they give security and trust to me, your customer. And Wow. It's like a credit card plus, plus, plus fraud protection. I love it. And it's so safe and it's enabled an economy and it's hundreds and billions of dollars, $650 billion, I think was a number that someone was quoting a few weeks ago. And if you look at, at Amazon, the picture is also, while in, in you know, we people complain about the, the sort of price issue and the, the Amazon muscling in with their own brand products, you can also see in other markets retailers absolutely dependent on the infrastructure that Amazon provides in order to get their businesses going. So there are clearly real benefits to all of this. But of course, the unlimited company doesn't have any any restraint or constraints about where it will go and how it will compete. And what your right of redress ends up being if it starts to take too much of a vig. Tony Soprano used to take a vig in his neighbourhood, right? And if they start to take too much of a cut, either financially or strategically or determine what you can and can't do. And I think that that becomes a problem. And I think the other thing to reflect on is that, you know, five years ago when I was sort of showing charts of the size of these companies and, and the biggest was $500 billion people would go, yeah, but it can't get much bigger than 500 billion. And they're all $2 trillion companies now, right? They've quadrupled in size. So why wouldn't they quadruple in size again in the next five years? And if they did, what would they actually be, be doing at that point? And then I think we have to start asking these, these questions. And, and some of them are a bit philosophical because they're not, they're not hurting us today in the here and now necessarily. 
there's a great Chinese science fiction author called um, Lu Chichin, and uh, he wrote the famously wrote the three body problem. In his one of his short story compilations, which is called The Wandering Earth, he has a short story called The Last Capitalist, where, where he has a character called The Last Capitalist. And he describes how a businessman, an entrepreneur, slowly, progressively wins more and more market share and buys out his competitors until he controls everything, including the rights to the sunlight and the rights to the fresh air. And everybody else lives as his surf and it's surf and it's one of these wonderful luchichin stories which is great in scale but it always it makes me think about the sort of extreme of this which is are we comfortable with a single person having all the power or three people having all the power and in general i think the answer is we're not comfortable with that and so when we look at these corporate entities and they're getting more and more power it's not so much about their profits it's about their fiat power, their, their ability to make decisions in their executive suites where we have no view of how those decisions took place and we have no way of disagreeing with them. So I think that that's the downside of this unlimited company. And I think the, the question is, can we find a path that delivers all of those amazing benefits that these technologies are providing and some of them are you know kind of foundationally great like you know the health benefits of the apple watch and so on but how can we do that without having to rely on the grace and favor of some corporate execs to do the right thing yeah it's interesting and so so many more like complications that come from this stuff for example we're already living in an era of rampant fake news and conspiracy theories so I guess question here is, do you think that truth is something that's going to be in increasingly short supply? And is that going to get exponentially worse? And obviously, if it does get exponentially worse, is that actually something you can ever fix? I think the, the problem of that fake news and the ease with which people can access those very, very problematic narratives is slightly driven by the unregulated and unmediated way that the platforms, YouTube and Facebook in particular, have operated for well over a decade. And I don't want to say, well, listen, political polarisation is a consequence of, of YouTube. You know, it was political polarisation, particularly in the US, was something that when I studied American politics in 1991 was something I studied. And, you know, Michael Mark Zuckerberg was probably two years old at the time, so I doubt it could have been uh, his fault. So there are underpinnings to it, but I think there is definitely increasing, although mixed evidence, that the way in which the platforms operate and the way in which they have not done enough to slow down the distribution of provably false material has been a real problem. And I mean, I tackle this in my in my eighth chapter where I talk about the fact that one of the things that happens with technologies is that they create these new potentials. And before we had those new potentials, nobody owned them because they didn't exist. So they were outside of the market system and they were outside of the profit motive. When these new potentials get created, particularly when they get created by a company, they move inside the market system, they move inside the profit motive of companies. And that's what happened with this idea of sharing of videos on YouTube, which didn't really exist before YouTube, or it did in a very primordial way. Once it did, we shared videos and were shown them according to YouTube's corporate priorities. And YouTube had no other priorities other than 
to chase its version of the GDP number, which was its profit and its growth. And so we have to kind of go in and, and tackle that. And governments are starting to do that quite belatedly because they move very slowly. Whether that is sufficient in of itself to unpick these kind of problems of people having alternative epistemologies and sort of fake pantheons in which they live, I think it's probably not enough. And you actually have to start to invest in sort of resensitizing people to the truth and to the value of the truth. Many things on the exponential curve are possibly fixable, but I think some things potentially aren't. Do you think that one leans towards the aren't? There's a march of science and there's a march of discovery that continues. I mean, I don't think many of us realised the extent to which infectious disease experts from around the world had been sharing data on the global flu database for years and years, or that there's a site called Virological, which is a bit like a, a Wikipedia for DNA sequences of viruses, on which uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, virome was released, the sequence was released on January the 6th uh, of 2020. And there's a commonality in, in approaches because of the language of science around how people think about the impact of distance education on children's learning outcomes or diabetes breakthroughs. I mean, these things go on through an underlying process and they form a bedrock and civil servants who make policy, make their policy and recommend that policy on the basis of that kind of real evidence. And companies will make their investments on the reality of whether solar power is cheaper than a coal-fired power station, not on false data, right? Or if they use it on false data, some other part of the financial system will punish them for it. Not everyone is like, there's that character, the My Pillow guy, right? Who who has his own in the US, who backs lots of these sort of conspiracies and he's a business person, but it's his own business. So it's his own choice. I mean, I think the danger is about the extent to which politicization changes the narrative in, in ways that are unhelpful. And that can be unhelpful to the left or unhelpful to the, you know, to the right. I think that's part of an ongoing struggle, but against a backdrop of things that are kind of necessarily true. I mean, the, no amount of science will ever, ever demonstrate that 5G sends nanobots controlled by Bill Gates to put coronavirus in your body and then mind control you. No amount of science will ever be able to do that. And because of that, that will at some point, although it will be believed by people in the same way that people believed Reverend Jim Jones and Heaven's Gate, but how, how can that really have an impact in, in widespread public policy? I just don't know if it can. I mean, I want to move off the topic, but I guess for a point here, I'm not so worried that it, it makes an impact on public policy. It's the, I guess the flip side of this is the the world that we live in with politicians increasingly having to be populist. That's where it becomes dangerous, right? Is when the narrative on mass, uh, you and I know is absurd. The politician knows it's absurd, but the system hasn't changed there either and they need votes. And so if that's what the mass population are leaning towards, then it makes all the sense to get the votes. But then at some point you kind of carry on the lie. Now that's a big risk. And that is a problem in, you know, different problem in different countries. What I would say about that is that politicians don't necessarily have all the power unless they do 
really, really crazy, crazy, crazy things, which, you know, they, they might. And politicians are able to do really cruel things within the limits of the power that they have. And they can also slow things down. But even with, for example, the US leaving the Paris Agreement under the previous president, it did nothing to slow down the rate of price decline of solar power or wind power or the rate of deployments of those technologies and the greening, the decarbonizing of the global ele electrical grid. Because you can go off and say coal, beautiful coal, but it doesn't change the economics. What you can do is you can slow things down and you can try to, you have the effect of reducing the levels of investment that might go in there. But I think there are some there are limits to that. And one of the things that I've noticed in recent years has been, in the, the recent last couple of years, has been an, you know, an increasing mood music around a lot of these issues. So people agree there's a problem with the power of big tech. People agree that there's a problem with carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, the American Industry Association of Petroleum Producers, which is called the API, the American Petroleum Institute, at some point in the spring of 2021 came out in favour of carbon taxes. That is just an amazing shift. I think there are these underlying shifts that, that go on and we can't rest on our laurels and say, therefore, you know, we're going to have this sort of happy, fair society that doesn't incinerate itself through climate change. But but I think that there are also limits to the the power that politicians have within the system because the system is quite complex. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't want to be too much of a Debbie Downer the whole interview. I'm pretty sure you've got lots of positive things to share as well. So, uh, you know, starting to wrap up towards the end, what do you think are some of the positive impacts of exponential growth and exponential technology? Do you think that we can solve major problems that, you know, might be stemming from the ex exponential gap? Uh, give us some upside. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we we will solve lots and lots of um, problems because we we will have the technologies uh, for them. I mean, the the fact that um, you know we went from January the sixth, the first public sequence of the the coronavirus genome, to January the thirty first, the first vaccine, which was the Moderna vaccine, being uh, sequenced, through to six months later, the phase three clinical trial starting, is pretty remarkable and. When we look at the path that we'll need to take around decarbonisation, we are not going to get there exclusively because of exponential technologies, but we're not going to get there without those technologies. And in particular, how we start to harness the power of nature through things like, you know, what we do with um, genomic technologies and, and precision fermentation and, and so on. We, we need and will benefit from all of those technologies in a deep and useful way you know, the cost of solar the cost of electricity will continue to decline and the amount of carbon for every dollar of wealth we produce will continue to decline as it has in most countries over the, uh, most rich countries over the last 20 years but that's actually not enough if all we do with this lower carbon intensity economy is splurge on a hundred times more crap, will still increase the, the carbon load, right? And it's a little bit like, um, you know, you buy a new cupboard and to sort out your mess. And then within three days, the cupboard's messy and the floor outside the cupboard's messy. So we also need to go in and 
tackle the some of the value questions about what matters to us and what are the equity questions that sit around this. So my last chapter is really is called Abundance and Equity because on the one hand, we can move into a kind of very limited abundance because it's a technological abundance, like lots of energy, lots of production of clever materials at low environmental impact. But in order to ensure that that is distributed equitably and in a way that is not damaging, we will need new principles to to manage that. And this is not a book where I go into a great bit of detail, amount of detail around where that balance exactly lies. I mean, I think that's a slightly different question, but there's clearly got to be some sense that we don't consume as much, even if our consumption is getting more efficient. And that that comes back to the question of what matters to us. So I guess final question here, which is, what is the most impactful takeaway from your book that you found as the writer? The real moment was a sense where I felt this is real. This transition into the exponential age, this transition into a very digital, more in- intelligent in a kind of software manner, cleaner, greener, more local political economy is really happening. I mean, it is it is happening. And so it could presage a real time of investment and growth and abundance and also being able to stare in and tackle this sort of problem of climate change. And I really, I got that sense in doing the research when I started to look at the data and look at the curves and say, I, th- I think we're getting there. And then I think the second part of that was to feel that I've written something that can be read by people who don't live in the technology industry and can equip them with a sense of the direction in which these things are going and equip them with the right kind of questions to ask of their elected leaders or think about the sort of jobs they might take or the way in which they might shape the direction of their companies. And and really, you know, this is a book that I would hope would be read by technologists to understand more the context of the impact of their technologies and by those of us who don't work in the technology industry to understand how to harness those and to close that gap between, you know, what comes from the tech world and the society that the rest of us live in. Amazing. Thanks so much, mate. It's been great to chat. Thanks, Dan. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I found myself writing um, sales promotion letters by the dozen, and they were letters in those days, not email, to no effect. I mean, people were just not replying to my letters. So my dear husband suggested that uh, I use the family nickname of Steve. And uh, the same letters to the same sort of prospects meant that I was began to get some responses by signing Steve Shirley. That was Dame Stephanie Shirley, one of the lucky children put on the kinder transport to escape Nazi Germany as a five-year-old for a new country she knew nothing about, England. 
She's a pioneer for women in work, founding a software company in the 60s with just six pounds that went on to be worth billions. And at a time when she couldn't even open a bank account without her husband's consent. Find out next week how she did it and why everyone calls her Steve. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.